everybody. It's good to greet you. Thanks for being at our 10 o'clock worship service today. I want to greet all those folks who are joining us online. What a joy it always is to welcome you into our service through our online campus. If you've got a Bible with you this morning, I want you to take it and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew. When you get to the Gospel of Matthew, I want you to find the ninth chapter. And while you're turning there, this is Veterans Day weekend, and so we always like to pause in our worship services to recognize, celebrate, and honor all of the veterans who are with us in that service. So if you're a veteran, we've done this twice already this weekend, would you go ahead and stand right where you are? Let us recognize and honor you. Go ahead and stand up right where you are. Awesome. Now, folks up in the balcony. We are so thankful for your service. Thank you so much. God bless all of you. Thank you so much. That's awesome. I have a book in my office written by Bob Russell, who was, as many of you know, the longtime pastor at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville. And it's one of many books that Bob wrote. This particular one is called After 50 years of ministry, seven things I do differently and seven things I do the same. In the seven things I do the same section, one of the things he writes about is the importance of making the necessary adjustments to cope with the taxing, what he calls the taxing pressure of ministry. And in that section, he makes an interesting statement. He says, writing a sermon is like having a term paper due every week. That resonated with me after being a preacher for over 37 years, especially this past week, because here's my honest confession. I got so busy with all of my other leadership responsibilities this past week that I didn't sit down to write a sermon until Thursday morning. Now, to give you an idea of how unusual that is, I usually have my first draft finished by the end of the day on Tuesday. And so when I got to my office, knowing that I had such little time because I had to have something for our tech team by Thursday afternoon so that they could prepare for the weekend, knowing I had such little time, I just began to go through the motions of grinding it out. You ever had to do that with your job? You just got to grind it out. Do what you got to do. But about halfway through the process, I thought to myself, there is absolutely no heart and no passion in this message. And right or wrong, good or bad, that's just not the way that I preach. And so I deleted every single thing that I had written. And I just simply prayed, Lord, give me something to say. And what came next is a result of that prayer. Now, I'm going to tell you something really honestly this morning. You're probably not going to walk out the door today and think that's the best sermon I ever heard. But I hope you walk out the door thinking that that sermon came from the heart. We're working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew and this sermon series called Let's Talk About Jesus. And as you know, I've divided up the Gospel of Matthew, at least for myself, and my study into three different sections. We're in or several different sections. We're in section three, which is Matthew chapters eight, nine, and ten. And I'm calling that glimpses of greatness because what you see throughout those three chapters is Jesus doing great things and Jesus calling his followers to embrace a greater life. Now, last weekend we looked at a great passage of scripture, Matthew 9, verses 18 through 26, and we really saw Jesus doing great things in that passage because we literally saw him bring a 12-year-old girl back to life. He raised her from the dead. And on the way to doing that is that great story that always moves us about that woman with the bleeding disorder who managed to crowd her way or 
slip her way through the crowd and reach out and touch the edge of his cloak and be healed from a sickness that had caused her to suffer for 12 years. And so we saw Jesus doing great things again. And that just continues in the next section of Matthew 9, verses 30, or excuse me, 18 through, or excuse me, 9, uh, 27 through 34, because in the next section, he heals two blind men and he heals a man who's possessed by a demon who the demon causes him to be mute. And then we come to this passage we're going to look at today. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And this passage, I've got to tell you, is to, at least to me, it is the most powerful example yet of this idea of Jesus calling his followers to embrace a greater life. I love this passage of Scripture, and I hope that you'll love it as well. So if you've got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 9, let's go ahead and stand together for the reading of God's Word. We do this every week. In reverence and respect for God's Word, if you're a guest, it might seem unusual, but we make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service every week, and we, because we love God's Word, we stand together when we read it. It's a very brief passage. You follow along. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. All right, there it is. Uh, You can be seated. We always, always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. On our recent trip to the Holy Land, we visited some places that I did not visit my first time. Knowing that I was going to have some people return with me on this second trip, I told our tour company that we wanted to visit some different places. I wanted to go to all the main major spots that you'll want to see when you go to the Holy Land, but I wanted to experience some different things. And so, one of the places we visited was called Yad Vashem. It's Israel's Holocaust memorial. It's located in the city of Jerusalem on what's known as the Mount of Remembrance. I don't know how I can explain that experience to you except to tell you that it was heartbreaking on so many different levels. One of the many things that stood out to me is that on the grounds there at Yad Vashem, there's a place called the Garden of the Righteous where trees have been planted to honor non-Jews who saved Jewish lives during the Holocaust. Perhaps the most well-known of the honorees is Oscar Schindler. I'm sure that name is familiar to you because I'm sure that most of you have seen the movie Schindler's List. And if you have, no doubt you'll remember a very moving scene at the end of the movie where after spending his entire fortune to save the lives of hundreds of Jews who had otherwise been killed in Hitler's Holocaust, Schindler himself has now become a fugitive. And at one point, as he prepares to leave his home to travel to a safe place, surrounded by his Jewish friends, surrounded by the people he had saved from certain death, he makes this statement. He said, I could have got more out. He looks at the car that he's about to leave in, and he knows that if he had sold that car, he could have saved the lives of ten more people. He takes a gold pin from the lapel of his jacket, and he says, if I would have sold this, I could have saved two, at least one. And in the end, overcome with emotion, he's overwhelmed by the knowledge that more people could have been saved, and he breaks down. 
I think about that scene from that movie when I read Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. The text begins with this really simple but accurate summation of what Jesus has been spending his time doing. Verse 35 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Isn't that what we've been talking about over the last several weeks? We've been looking at the reality of that statement in detail over the last several weeks as we began this third section in Matthew chapter 8. And then you come to this really personal moment in Jesus' life. It's, almost, it's a moment almost where Matthew, as he records it, pulls back the curtain and says, I want you just for a moment, just for a second, to take a look at the heart of Jesus. Matthew 9.36 says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus has moved at the sight of so many people, and he's moved at the sight of so many needs. And so he says to his disciples, and this, friends, is this call. This is Jesus calling his followers to embrace a greater life. He says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Well, what I want to do for just a few minutes is I want to borrow Jesus' word harvest. I want to use that word harvest to talk about some important truths that have not changed now more than 2,000 years later, truths that need to move our hearts in the same way that they moved Jesus's. I've got five of them written down. I'll work my way through them pretty quickly. The first one is this. The harvest continues to be plentiful. Jesus said, literally in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful. The world, we understand this, the world is big, and the number of people who are spiritually lost in the world today is overwhelming. Think of it in these terms. I read this past week that in Jesus' day, the population of the world was approximately 150 million people. Today, the world's population grows by 150 million people every two years. Today, there are some 7.6 billion people in the world. According to the Joshua Project, which is an organization that tries to highlight the ethnic groups of the world with the fewest followers of Christ, according to the Joshua Project, there are 6,989 unreached people groups in the world today that represent over 3 billion people. And they identify unreached people groups like this. Few evangelicals, few who identify as Christians, little if any history of Christianity. The harvest continues to be plentiful today. And not just in the faraway corners of the world. We're talking about the harvest in terms of across the street and around the corner and in the shadow of this church and many other churches. This is our calling. This is our responsibility as Christians, as people who identify as followers of Christ. This harvest is our responsibility. Several years ago here at Mount Pleasant, I was preaching a sermon series from Matthew chapter 28 on the Great Commission. You remember that passage. The last thing Jesus says to the disciples is, go into all nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I observed you. And he says, I'll be with you to the very end of the age. Well, I was preaching a sermon series, I can't remember, it's four, five, six weeks or something like that on that passage from Matthew chapter 28. And every single weekend, I began the message by asking this question, can a single church in central Indiana change the world? 
And I know that some thought that was kind of a crazy question. Maybe a little bit too bold. Can a single church in central Indiana change the world? Well, let's think about that for just a minute. You know, we've been longtime partners with Central India Christian Mission almost 30 years with Dr. Ajay and Indu Law. And we just, in the last couple of years, in addition to our regular support, gave about $400,000 to Central India Christian Mission because of your faithfulness when it comes to generosity. Gave $400,000 to Central India Christian Mission to help build a new wing on the hospital there in the city of Damo that serves a region in India that serves millions, literally, I'm not embellishing this, millions of people. Do you think that will change the world for those people in central India? Several years ago, we stepped back and looked at our global mission support, and I was unhappy with the way things were going because we were doing a good job of writing checks, but we weren't doing a whole lot more, and we didn't have the kind of involvement in those missions that I wanted us to. And so we, I said, this is what we're going to do moving forward. We're going to, in order to, to be a global mission partner of Mount Pleasant Christian Church, you've got you to meet one of three qualifications. And the first one is this, you got to be a mission organization that's involved in leadership development. And what I meant by that is you need to be a mission organization who has the focus of training indigenous leaders to lead in churches to serve people in the countries where they're from. Now, I grew up in church my whole life, and I grew up with this model of white American missionaries going to different corners of the world to serve, and that's a, that's a noble thing. I don't diminish that in any way, shape, or form, but that model of mission work is slowly dying. I hope you know that. Because what's so much more effective today is funding organizations that train indigenous leaders to stay right where they are in the culture that they know with the people that they love and share with them the gospel of Jesus. Build churches, plant churches, serve churches. And so we serve organizations. We, or we fund organizations like TCM that's located here in Indianapolis or Overseas Council located here in Indianapolis or Christian Arabic Services, those kinds of things because they train indigenous workers. But we added this caveat to that support. We don't want to just fund the training, the seminary education of these workers. We want when they finish as they go out to plant churches or to continue to lead churches, we want to know about those churches so we can fund those ministries as well. Do you think that changes the world in those corners of the world for people? We recently entered into a support, a funding support relationship with Pioneer Bible Translators located in Dallas. And we're talking to them about financially supporting the translation of the Bible into languages, into the language of some of the unreached people groups in the world. These are people who live in different corners of the world who literally have no written translation of the Bible in their own language. So we're talking about providing the funding that can translate the New Testament, that can translate verses like John 3.16 into their own language, do you think that will change the world for those people, wherever they might be? I don't know how you would answer those questions, but I would answer all of them. I do. I definitely think that changes the world. And all that reminds, all that does is remind me that the harvest continues to be plentiful. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 9.37, the harvest continues to be plentiful. The second thing I wrote down is the harvest represents people who are deeply loved by Jesus. Not only was the harvest of people plentiful, but as Jesus looked out at those people, and Matthew records it for us, he was deeply moved because they were people that he deeply loved. The word Matthew uses there for compassion is a great word in the original language of the New Testament. We've talked about it before, but it's probably been a little while. It's the Greek word splunkna. 
comes from the word splunknizomai. And it describes an emotion that you feel so deeply, an emotion you feel that is so real that you literally feel it physically. Oftentimes we feel it in the pit of our stomach. Have you ever had that experience? I was at my house on Friday, and I was looking at one of my social media sites. Friday's my day off. And I noticed a news feed that said a man that I had gone to Bible college with several years ago who married a girl that I've known, her and her family, for over 40 years, who'd faithfully served the church for the last several years and had a massive heart attack and died. And I was just stunned like we all are when we get that kind of news. I just put my hands to my face, and I just thought, no. And I felt that in the pit of my stomach. You know what I'm talking about? As I thought about his grieving widow and his four grown children and his eight grandchildren who were left behind. That's how Jesus felt when he looked out at the crowd. So when Matthew records that and he says, that he had compassion on them. That doesn't even come close to accurately describing the reality of what was happening in Jesus' life in that moment because Jesus so deeply loved those people that he was looking at. This past week I read the story about a man named Roy Fish who for over 50 years served as a professor of evangelism at Southwest Southwestern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. He's since passed away. But the story said that years ago, he had an infant son who had an illness that brought him near death. And Roy, like any father, felt his heart breaking, literally, physically. He felt the reality of his heart breaking at the thought of his son's death. And so as he sat next to the hospital bed, looking down at the fragile body of his infant son, he asked himself, what would I regret most if my son died? And writing about it later, he said, as he pondered the question, the answer became clear. He said, I would regret that my son died without ever having known how much I loved him. How tragic is it for people to die in the world today without ever having known how much God loves them, how much Jesus, how deeply Jesus loves them. Jesus' heart grieves over every lost soul. That's what Matthew is telling us. And part of being like Jesus, which the Bible says is clearly the will of God for all of us, is to see people the same way Jesus does. That means our hearts should grieve over every lost soul. The third thing I wrote down is this. The harvest represents people who, on their own, are lost. That's something we need to understand. The harvest represents people who, on their own, are lost. Jesus describes the crowd, or Matthew, as he shows us this moment in Jesus' life, describes the crowd. Remember what he said? He says that they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's the phrase that he uses. Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What does that mean? How do we understand that? That word harassed basically means worn out and exhausted. That's the simplest way to define that word in the original language. The word helpless literally means downcast, but not downcast just in the sense of being depressed. It's more graphic than that. It's a word that describes being downcast in the sense of literally being thrown down to the ground through some kind of mortal wound. 
And then he says they were like sheep without a shepherd, which just describes people, excuse me, who has no one, has no one to lead them or guide them, no one to care for them. People who are worn out, people who are exhausted, people who are down on the ground, been beaten down by the reality of life, and who are aimless. There's a reason why the Bible so often uses the word sheep to describe people. Simply stated, sheep are not the most intelligent animals on the face of the earth. Now, I, I, it might not sound like it, but I, I labored over how to say that. Several years ago, I preached a sermon series from the 23rd Psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I made the statement in that sermon series that sheep are stupid. Well, somebody just was deeply offended, and they let me know that in an email. How dare you call one of God's creations stupid? But I'm going to stick with my statement this morning. There's a reason why people so often are described as sheep in the scriptures. And one of those, one of the main reasons is reflected in the herd mentality that you see in sheep because sheep oftentimes just put their heads down and blindly follow the sheep in front of them no matter where it goes. And so if there's no guide, there's no leader, there's no shepherd, they'll wander and wander and wander with no understanding of where they're going and oftentimes wander into deep levels of danger. Don't you think that describes the reality of a lot of people in the world today? It does. That's why Ralph Waldo Emerson said people are often living lives of quiet desperation. It also reminds me of something Jesus said earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, when he says, For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And then he says, And many enter through it. Why? Because they are just mindlessly following the crowd. That's the result of being harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The fourth thing I wrote down is this. The harvest won't be here forever. I'm not a farmer, but I understand the meaning of the word harvest. There comes a time when any crop, regardless of what it is, is ready for harvest, and that should create a sense of urgency in the person responsible for doing the reaping. And listen to me close, friends. As Christ followers, we need to understand that sense of urgency with regard to the ultimate harvest. As Christ followers, we need to have a fundamental sense of urgency about the world that we live in today. I'm sure, as I stand here this morning and say this, I am certain that every single generation has felt the way that I feel and the way that many of us feel, at least to some degree, about the desperate condition of the world. Have you ever seen a more desperate time than what we're experiencing in the world that we live in today? We're reminded of it every time we turn the television on or every time we log on to the computer and we read a news feed. What level of deep separation from God has to exist in a world where someone will walk into a church service on a Sunday morning in a small town and open fire on innocent people with an assault weapon that kills 26 people and leaves 20 wounded? What level of separation is there between God and man for that to happen in the world today? I read a great quote from a preacher 
named Vance Havner today, he, or this week, he said, the tragedy of our time is that the situation is desperate, but the saints are not. People of faith, of faith, people who claim to be followers of Christ need to feel a sense of urgency when it comes to living authentic Christian lives that make a difference in the world today. Because we live in desperate times. Listen, friends, we live in a world that's lost and broken and fallen and sinful and just about any other word you can use to describe it. You know, I love the words of John chapter 10 and verse 10, and I'm sure you do too, even if you might not immediately recognize the reference. But I find that I'm guilty oftentimes of just quoting half of the verse, the second half of the verse, where Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Or, the way I prefer it, the way I learned it when I was young, I have come that they might have life and have it more, what am I going to say? Abundantly. Abundantly. Literally, it's a word in the original language that just talks about a whole new level of life and living. That's what Jesus offers. That's a wonderful promise, but that's just half of the verse. Oftentimes, I don't quote the first part, which is just as true as the second, because the verse begins like this. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Of course, that's a reference to our enemy, the devil, who wants to see people continue in this state of being harassed, in this state of being helpless, and in this state of being like sheep without a shepherd because he's having his way with lives today, and it's time for believers to recognize that and take responsibility for the harvest field because it won't be with us forever. The fifth and final thing that I wrote down The harvest must become our priority. And Jesus shows that clearly in verses 37 and 38 when he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. That's Jesus saying, take responsibility for the harvest field. Think about the people in your life today. Let me ask you a pointed question. Everyone, just answer this in the quietness of your heart. Is there somebody in your life that you know and you love deeply and you care about deeply that you know today is a long way from God? Is there anybody in your life that you love and you care about deeply who is not living today in a right relationship with God? That's your harvest field. That's your harvest field. And you can do something about that. There are things you can do. You can pray for people you know who are not living in a right relationship with God. You can deepen your relationship with people who are not living in a right relationship with God so that you can learn their story and in turn be given the opportunity to share your story, which can include the difference that Jesus has made in your life. You can invite them to church or some spiritual activity. You can simply live an authentic life of faith in front of them that is so winsome and so genuine and so authentic that it's impossible to go unnoticed. We don't want to come to the end of our lives with regret as believers when it comes to reaching out to others, when it comes to the harvest field that is around us. We don't want to live small lives, and small lives are lives that are consumed only with what we want, nothing else. We want to make a difference. We want God to use us in some way to change the world for someone somewhere. We don't want to come to the end of our lives with regret. Watch this clip with me, and then we'll close.
Talmud that says whoever saves one life saves the world entire. Listen to these words one more time. Jesus went through all the towns. And villages. Teaching in their synagogues. Preaching the good news of the kingdom. And healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds. He had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I want you to pray with me this morning. Father in heaven, my simple prayer for